I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land we're broadcasting from today and the lands that you're listening to us from. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I take a moment to acknowledge traditional custodians' connection to and care for country that here extends back some 60,000 or so years and continues today. I also acknowledge any First Peoples listening to this episode. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of An Equine Conversation, a podcast brought to you by Abby's Run Equestrian. I'm your host, Sarah Nichols. I have been teaching people about horse management, handling and riding over 27 years through riding schools, pony clubs, working equitation clubs, adult riding clubs and privately. And I am the founder and owner of Abby's Run Equestrian. Through An Equine Conversation, we aim to help you improve your knowledge by giving you access top quality information that will help you to be the best horse caregiver you can be so that you can give horses in your care the best life possible. An equine conversation is designed to be thought-provoking and it may bring you some ideas, approaches or information that you had not come across previously. It was a few years ago now when I first heard about Dr. Michaela Hempen's master's research on crib biting, which for those uninitiated is a stereotypic behavior that horses can have. And Michaela will explain more as we get into the episode. I heard about the research and then had the good fortune to see some of the timeline film of the project thanks to Alexandra Kurland. There is not much now after so long in the horse world that really captures my attention strongly. But wow, Michaela's research blew my mind. It still does. I was absolutely captivated watching the footage, glued to the screen to see it all in as much detail as I could take in. I think the findings from Michaela's work are absolutely game-changing in terms of how we view, understand, and then manage crib biting in horses and possibly other stereotypes as well. I am so moved by Michaela and the broader team's work in this space and the implications that it has for the welfare of cribbing horses. I really look forward to further research happening on crib biting and other equine stereotypes. Since I heard about this research, anyone mentions crib biting to me and I vomit excitement about Michaela's research all over them. So I was itching to have Michaela come and speak with me on an equine conversation to share this with you so that I could point people to this conversation instead of trying to explain the research and the findings myself. I also resonate with Michaela's own equine journey, which I mentioned throughout the episode. It's a super long episode as there is so much to talk about and we still ran out of time and need to talk again. I won't say any more here so that you can get to hearing from Michaela herself. Dr. Michaela Hempen has graduated in veterinary medicine with a PhD in veterinary public health. She works at the European Food Safety Authority as a scientific officer in the area of biological hazards, bacteria, viruses, parasites, and animal welfare. Michaela also has a master's degree in equine science. Her thesis was supervised by Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz from North Texas University, and we'll be discussing that further today. Michaela has been addicted to horses, like many of us, since early childhood. Her first horse, Asphalot, Asphaloth, oh, I hope I said that okay, Michaela, is still with her and has since been joined 
by Greyer and Blondie. Michaela's training with horses has been most strongly influenced by horse trainer, author, and podcaster Alexandra Kerland of the Clicker Centre, Anya Baran, head of the internationally renowned Gut Rosenhof, again, I hope I said that okay, training centre in Germany, who uses classical dressage as physiotherapy for horses, and the Feldenkrais method, which has been integral to the improvement of Michaela's riding and interaction with horses. Um, And just a side note from me that these three things have actually been, to a lesser extent than for Michaela, all part of my journey too, which Michaela and I have never discussed, um, but I really resonated with Michaela's journey and those three points and influences. Anyway, Michaela has been involved in organizing, hosting, and presenting at various clinics and workshops for and with Alexandra Kerland, and also involving Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz and Mary Hunter. In 2021, Michaela co-presented with Alexandra at Clicker Expo Live, and the year after, both Michaela and Alexandra hosted an online workshop that combined dressage and clicker training with Anya Baran as a special guest. Also, in 2022, Michaela taught students of a German certification program for horse-assisted interventions. Michaela offers personalised coaching for horse owners, which is based on learning from Alexandra Kerland and Anya Baran. You can find more information on Michaela's Clicker Training Preferred website, Facebook page, YouTube, and Instagram. Links we will share with you in the show notes together with her science-related profiles for those interested. Michaela, I am so excited to chat to you today and share about your crib biting research to our listeners. And I know some of our listeners will have no idea what crib biting is, so we might have to get onto that pretty early. I guess there's not much with horses these days that has me absolutely captivated. I've seen a lot in my over 27 years of instructing and longer than that working with horses, but your research work has had me absolutely captivated. Uh, when I was lucky enough to hear more detail about it and see a bunch of the footage that you took for your project, I think I saw it back in 2021, I was glued to the screen a few inches, so I think my face was a few inches to the screen with my <laughs> mouth hanging open. And I think that what you've discovered has the potential to be a game changer for how we support horses who are crib biters. But before we get into detail on that research, which we will do, your biography mentions being addicted to horses since childhood. And I'm really curious to understand what it was about horses for you. And if you can tell us a little bit about your horsey journey from then until now. <laughs> oh dear, I have to keep it short. If not, we'll not be able to talk about <laughs> Blondie. Anyway, Sarah, thanks a lot for inviting me. And uh, I, because I, I also find this research really fascinating and we'll talk about it later. So for the, my horses, well, I can't tell you what, what it is about horses. They're just magical creatures and uh, was in my genes. So uh, there's, there's no beginning point for me. It was just always there. I had, I remember my childhood room was cluttered with horse images. Whenever I could find a journal and there was a horse image, I would cut it out and paste it on my wall. So it was, I was, was, and I'm the only person actually in my family who is animal addicted. I would say I'm the only one who always had an animal. My other family members do not have animals or pets or anything. So maybe I was not really actually born into that family. I don't know if they grabbed me somewhere. So no, I cannot, I cannot tell you that, but I was, um, uh, my generation, uh, we were not allowed to ride before the age of 12. 
So I was hanging out in horse barns, uh, grooming horses and trying to touch them and anything. Then I started uh, bolting, actually, because, as I said, we could only ride at the age of 12. And then I was in a traditional barn, you know, the normal the normal things, FEI-style uh, barn with a rather military-style teaching and riding school horses. I started riding private horses of owners that didn't have the time, so I actually rode plenty, plenty, plenty of different horses. I went to shows, horse shows, not to compete, but I would stand at the gate when the rider, riders had completed their presentation and they wanted to grab a beer with their friends and they wanted to get rid of the horses. So I was standing there and ride the horses dry. <laughs> and I still can't believe that they just handed me their horses. So, I was <laughs> um, so you know, I didn't know what that horse was, how he reacted, but anyway, they've been tired after. Yeah, yeah. You were whatever very keen. I could get. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever opportunities. So I, I've been riding lots of different horses. And uh, my, I got my first personal horse. I was already mature, almost 40, when I got my first horse, Asphalot. It took me quite a, quite a bit to fulfill that dream. And uh, yes, then uh, I, with him, uh, so he was a 10-year-old coming from a reigning background, actually. So he's an Arab cross. He was 10 years old, as I said, coming from reigning, which... Western riding discipline, which I am not doing. So I was always riding uh, dressage, English uh, would be the label, I guess. And um, he, so I started with him mostly. My idea was to go on trail rides. And um, so I did that initially. And then I said, but I always had this passion for dressage. And I, said, I found a, an instructor of a classical dressage and started taking lessons. And pretty early on in, I think it was maybe the second or third lesson she the instructor so it was i have to set the scene so it was a cold winter night really really cold and with the snow sliding off the roof and you know when the horses in winter they are a bit more energetic and uh, yeah so he she said she asked me to send him forward in a brisk trot and he really couldn't do it and he started bucking once you know i riding he bucked another time I kept riding he bucked a third time and the, the, that time I sort of slid halfway I was hanging on around his neck holding tight <laughs> but I was and he was really sweet he stopped uh, wondering what I would do next and I couldn't go get back in the saddle and I let myself go hit the hard frozen floor and broke my shoulder I say that because this is important because it was a, dis, uh, uh, a turning point for me because at that moment I had already started reading Alexandra Curlin's material, um, the books, and I had uh, the first set of DVDs. And um, since I couldn't write for the next month, I said, well, that's the perfect moment to explore clicker training. And this is what I did. And I haven't stopped since because the effect immediately was so mind-blowing because he was yeah, he, he changed uh, and not only for me but also if all the people that were around him so the barn owner the veterinarian they all realized that he he became more joyful more playful and I had a lot of fun you know so that's where I engaged 100% in 
going through Alexandra's work. Um, so that was really important. At the same time, uh, I continued learning from Anya Beran, who is, as, a, as you said in your introduction, is a classical dressage uh, trainer in, in Germany. And I'm a veterinarian by background. I went to her in 2011, the first time for her international workshop. And I was mind blown because from my veterinary background, watching her training, it was really amazing how she can train or ride horses back to health, which in most cases, riding is actually destroying horses if it's done poorly. But in her case, she brings them back to health. So horses that were already on the way to retirement at an early age, um, they, they then recovered and could do things that many horses will not be able to do in their whole lifetime. Um, so, and these two, two schools, if you want, Alexandra Kulan's work and Anya Beran's work, uh, as I discovered it further at a certain point, I made the connection between the two. And I saw that what Alexandra teaches and what Anya teaches is strongly interlinked. It's basically the same thing, the same outcome, which is a more balanced, healthy horse you know, that feels good in its body and feels good emotionally. It's the same outcome uh, taught in a slightly different way, but actually not so different as you might expect by just watching. And these two combined is, um, that's basically my main tool set in, in working with horses. Um, so my second horse, Graya, she's a Spanish, so pura raza española, so she's a purebred Spanish which some people call Andalusian, but Andalusian would not necessarily be purebred, but that's a detail, who was um, who was bred in Switzerland, actually. Um, so I got her as a two-year-old directly from the breeder, and she was started by Anya Beran in, as a three-year-old. Um, so she was started on the saddle by Anya, which then gave me, again, the possibility to spend more time with Anya, see her uh, approach, see her training. Um, and so she had a really good start. So I'm riding her more in a more dressage way. I'm now starting riding her in a double bridle and uh, she's, she's really lovely to ride. And the third one is the one we'll be talking about a lot, which is Blondie, um, who was the study subject uh, of that um, project on, on the crib biting behavior, who then came to my family as the owner, decided to sell her and I could then with the help of the clicker training community actually raised the funds to to buy her and she's now with us in, in my little herd. Wow, that is quite the story. I, this is why I love hearing people's stories, Michaela, because even though I often am uh, either friends with our guests or I know quite a bit about our guests, inevitably when someone tells their story like this, I find out pieces that I didn't know. And I love, I just love, I just love hearing everybody's journey with horses. It's so wonderful. You're so very lucky to have met Anya. Um, she was a part of my journey a very long time ago when an Alexander Technique teacher. There was this whole, it was just a strange series of events that I have still in a bag, I think. And it's a series of magazine articles and books that le have led me on it, on my journey. And it's such a great kind of story to have them all together. And so it started with a magazine article in a magazine here in Australia, written by a gentleman called Richard Weiss. And Richard is or was an Alexander Technique instructor and a horse riding instructor. I read this article and he was too quite into classical dressage and it sort of really captivated me. And then I ended up, I met Richard and then I ended up meeting a woman called Marigold, who was another Alexander Technique instructor and horse riding instructor. 
she said, Sarah, I think you should read this book. I think you would really love this book. It would really resonate with you. And she put Anya's first book in deference of the horse. I think that was her first book anyway, Yes, in front of me. And so, yeah, I then got a copy of Anya's book and read that and got really interested in her work. And then the tyranny of distance being in Australia means that's not always super easy to work with people in Europe. And I did mm-hmm. get some of Anya's DVDs here, um, but I ended up working with, a, um, with Philippe Carl and his sort of school, but it's, which is different to Anya's, but you know, there's some sort of parallels, I guess, there. But it was just so interesting, the influences that you've had and just the, the really important part that Anya's played for me in my journey, just not so much directly as, as with yours as well. And, um, and then I've had the pleasure to work with Alexandra more recently and, uh, and then Feldenkrais, I came to a totally different way, not, not via Alex, it was through um, an associate professor of veterinary science that I was training with for a while. And she actually, at that time, was teaching veterinary students at Melbourne University here. And her special area was functional anatomy with horses. And um, her name is Dr. Helen Davies. And Helen was telling me how much benefit she was getting from Feldenkrais. And the, the particular woman she was seeing, and I was like, well, you know so much about functional anatomy. And Helen at the time was also a dressage judge and also had been a riding instructor for decades and decades in parallel with her veterinary career. And so I was like, well, if, if it's helping you, Helen, I am, I'm sold. I'm sold with Feldenkrais. So, um, yeah, I just really resonate, I guess, with, it's just interesting how I've got those parallels with your story, but in a, in different ways and different times and sort of different influences. But I, I love that. And thank you for sharing your, your story. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. No. I mean, I guess it's almost a rhetorical question after you tell us all of that. But then what what was it? You know, you were already uh, a qualified veterinarian and, and I'm guessing maybe you already had your PhD and then you've come back and decided to do a master's in equine science. What made you decide to go down that path? Um, to be honest, and I hope nobody from University of Edinburgh is listening, I did not really care about the <laughs> equine science part. As such, what I wanted to do was a study on on crib biting um, or cribbing. And I wanted to do a formal study. Um, so I didn't want to just, you know, go ahead and do something irrelevant. So I wanted to do something that is in the, in the context of an academic um, course, in a way. Uh, that's why I, and I went for, for that. I actually, I, like you, you know, I was looking for different possibilities. Um, I was also considering doing applied behavior analysis or some welfare, for example, because I also work in animal welfare, so that was also a consideration. But it was the equine behavior part that was important to me, and I decided that I I, I go on for equine science and then specialize on the behavior. So the University of Edinburgh allows a distant learning, and that's why I went that road. So it was not so much the... I, I did learn uh, many good things that were interesting and um, also a lot of refreshers and they were equine specific because in, if you do veterinary medicine, you do a large, huge set of different species. I mean, we do everything. So this was, of course, more specific on horses. It also included some training aspects um, and yeah, aspects that were not part of the veterinary school. But yeah, so the, the reasoning for me was really to actually do this study on crib biting. That was the rationale. And I guess, um, I don't think we've mentioned yet, but you're actually based in Italy. Yes, I'm based in Italy. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when we're saying Edinburgh offered distance education, I know we mentioned Anya's in Germany. You're based in Italy. I'm talking to you from Australia. It is a very interconnected world that we exist in now. So that's really cool. Okay. I didn't realize that that's how you ended up doing your master's. Maybe for those non-horsey listeners that we have, because I know some of you out there listeners are not horsey people. Michaela, what even is cribbing or crib biting? Right. So it is um, actually, a be- so the name indicates what it looks like. So think about a horse that bites into, let's say, on a horizontal surface. Usually that's what they use. So it could be the feeder and they put their incisor teeth on, on that edge and then they pull back. And often is this uh, accompanied by a, a grunt. And they do that repetitively, really very, very frequently, which is why it's called an oral stereotypy. And there are also different definitions for stereotypy or stereotypic behavior, depending on which science you go on, which, but I would say roughly, uh, it's a repetitive behavior. So you, if you look at a horse doing that, you see immediately that this is repetitive. So you don't need to measure anything. It's obvious. It's really obvious. So they keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing. And it has, it seems to have very little variation. There are variations if you look at it more closely. But if you don't use video and you don't use your analytics, so just by observing, it seems very invariant and it's obviously repetitive. And then that is called stereotypic. Um, of course, there are more sophisticated definitions of stereotypy, but let's leave it at that. And it's often defined as an oral stereotypy because there are also locomotory stereotypies. Um, and that's, for example, pacing. That's something that people will know. Also, it's uh, seen often in the zoo where, the, you know, the tiger is pacing along the fence back and forth. So it's in that context that you you have to see that that behavior. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, it's not great. It's not very nice at all. <laughs> um, ter- with that's great seems really strange that was an automatic reaction uh, that a podcaster might get when talking to a guest um what do we know about why crib biting happens what 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 prompts this to start in some horses and not in others we cannot prove a causal relationship so there are many many theories about it some make more sense than others some uh depends a little bit on where a scientist uh, has his feet based in which camp he or she is. So we, we don't, we can't prove it. We don't really know where it, uh, where it originates. And I would say it also it's individual. So the reasons for the development of this behavior can be very different from one, one horse to the next. The theory, uh, theories that, that are, were brought forward are, for example, um, that the horses do not have enough foraging material. So there's not enough roughage, not enough hay. It seems like a biting or like a feeding behavior if you look at the topography of the behavior so it it seems to make sense that if they do not have hay they keep on biting something else and then they develop that behavior so it would come out of a need behavioral need to forage that is unmet and they find a substitute for that need so that's one of the theories there was also the theory of um, acidosis so you would have um again, sort of linked to not having enough forage, that there's a high pH in the stomach or in the intestines. And the biting produces saliva. 
So horses, that, which is why horses need to chew all the time to produce the saliva because horses produce constantly gastric acid. So in order to buffer that gastric acid, they need to produce saliva and that's only produced if they are chewing. So that's a big problem in, in keeping horses actually. Uh, so there was also the theory that doing that crib biting would produce the saliva that then buffers the gastric uh, acid. However, there are also studies that um, contradict that say the cribbing does not actually increase saliva production. So that couldn't be, couldn't be the reason. And there are some uh, arguments about an effect of changes in, in the nervous system uh, that is caused by chronic stress. Uh, and that this, the horses do not learn to find maybe other alternatives of behavior. So they just keep on doing things um, due to changes in the, in the neural pathways. And um, I think one theory that I sort of like the most, uh, that makes most sense to me, is that it's linked, so again, for some horses, because it will be different for each individual, that they learn it during weaning. Because imagine if you are, there are many changes as you are weaning a foal off the mother. So the foal is with the mother in, a, in the herd. Uh, and then at one point, what most breeders do, they would take the foal away from the mother, separate it, put, put the foal in a box. So that's one change, uh, drastic change being taken away from the mother, very drastic. Another drastic change of environment is putting it in a box when before they were on the field. Another big change is the change in feeding because then very often what the breeder wants is they want to start feeding them so they get bigger. They start feeding concentrates. They may have fewer roughage because they're not on the field anymore. Uh, and they're fed concentrates, which may affect also, you know, also the microbiome in the gut and all types of interlinked things. Um, so, but the, the stress factor of it, of being separated from the mother, taken into a completely different environment, probably also being handled by people much more. And they still have the, they, they, they are still used to suckling the milk from, with them, with the mother. So they are, they may be being in the box, being separated, being stressed, uh, that they, with their mouth, they, they, they search basically for the tit and they may, encounter a surface and suck on it and that may be the only thing that gives them some sort of relief from that stress some sort of comfort and that they learn it this way and then maintain it because it's the only source of of comfort so that's immediately reinforcing and they they maintain that coping strategy if you want um uh, during their whole lives whenever they they come into uncertainty or stress etc so that is um one story that you could tell that makes a lot of sense. However, it, there's, we, as I said, it would be individual for each horse, I think. And uh, how they learn it, we don't really know. But in, here's, here's something I'm saying that is already important. I, that is a learned behavior. So it's not something that is triggered and then the, comes out of the animal. It's a behavior that the animals learn. That which I think is a really key piece of information that we'll come back to. As, as we're talking, what do we understand the physical effect of crib biting, particularly, you know, long-term crib biting to be for horses? What, what, what does it do to them? What, what can it do? And the non-horsey people might not know this, but maybe they can start construing it from what you've said already. Humans generally don't find crib biting in horses very desirable. 
Um, it can do things like reduce the, the the price of a horse when a horse is known to be a crib biter or to have another stereotypic behavior. Um, so I guess firstly, what are the the physical effects on the horse's physiology, uh, and then you know, kind of how does that transpose to what you know what the humans dislike about it? Right. So for the horse, the effects are not as severe as you might expect uh, directly. So if you leave the human out. So what, what you will observe often is that if they crib on a hard surface, for example, on a metal feeder, um, there is a wear down of their incisor teeth. So if you see older horses that they were crib biting for all their life, um, sometimes the teeth are so short and they, you already, they already reached the gum, gum line. And we know that horse teeth are growing. So <laughs> that's quite drastic. Uh, that certainly is, is, um, is an effect. Sometimes they also may lose weight because they are so busy cribbing that they are not taking enough foraging. So they may lose weight or you, you are not able to feed them up. There has been theories about a link to colic, but you actually it's, it's very difficult to prove because there are several factors and to actually to prove a causal relationship is very difficult. There were come some papers out um, that seem to provide some evidence that there's a link to a certain type of colic, a very specific type of colic. Um, however, I'd say the evidence is very weak. So probably what's more probable is that horses that crib bite um, and are kept under very adverse conditions in terms of welfare, that they, these conditions also lead to a higher risk of colic. So it's, it's, uh, it's a compound uh, factor, so you cannot uh, link to that directly. So, but more severe are the the effects to the people. So, as you said, um, crib biting is very disturbing to people. There's a lot of stigma around it. So, the owner of a crib biting horse gets a lot of uh, criticism, direct or indirect, saying, "You know, you are stressing your horse out, or what's wrong with your horse? What you are, what are you doing wrong?" What's wrong with your horse? Uh, I don't want to have the horse next to mine because maybe my horse will learn the behavior, which is there's no evidence for that. So what often happens, which is the case for Blondie, that they won't, the owners want to get rid of the horse. The price goes down, which was the same for uh, Blondie. Basically, the owner bought her from the breeder because she has a beautiful collar. She's a Palomino. Uh, she's a quarter horse, but he could afford her because of the cribbing. <laughs> he actually naively thought he can fix that. <laughs> so they they are sold on. They they change um, they change owners frequently, and that's a welfare issue. And some of the barns don't take horses that crib. That's a welfare issue. So I'd say the impact on the on the horses is more directed to human or influenced by human behavior than than the cribbing itself. So interesting, and that and that stigma, I think, for the for the humans, is really profound and important, um, and what that what that does for people and their approach and their management and what they do. So, Michaela, you were so passionate about this that you sought out a master's, to, you know, to 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 research this, you know, stereotypic behaviour. Why? What, what, what was so, you know, what made you so passionate about crib biting? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, um, we had, we had a horse in our herd 
that did um, crib biting and I, I didn't understand why. Because basically we do everything that, you know, a veterinary or behavior consultant would tell you to do. So our horses are in a group. They are out all day. They get roughage all day. They are certainly not taking to competitions and they are not stressed during riding. And this horse kept cribbing and I didn't understand why. And at the same time, I was exploring um, behavior analysis, trying to understand, you know, what's, what's this new science that I'd never heard of before because I was uh, beginning the clicker training and learning um, the science uh, underneath it. So I thought, okay, maybe this, you know, this science can help to solve this puzzle. Yeah, so it was, uh, it built up quite a long time. It, uh, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, now I'm doing a master. So it, it was a puzzle that I, I wanted to solve over, over years and then uh, ended up using that strategy to get a bit closer to a, to a solution. And I'm so glad that you, you did. I'm sorry that you had this problem to try and solve, but I, geez, I'm glad you did. So one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet, which I think is important, you know, just prior to talking about why you took on the masters and, and your passion for that, one of the management things that we commonly see with crib biting are the, the collars. Could you maybe describe those for people who haven't seen them or, or don't understand how they work? Yes, that's a good, I'm glad you're asking because I was wondering how I can weave that in uh, because that's also one of the things that make cribbing a welfare issue for horses. So if people don't want to see the behavior. So they, instead, instead of selling the horse directly, they will try different measures. So what they will try to do to stop the cribbing, um, there are different strategies people use. One is, as you say, the cribbing collar. So what that is, it's, um, it's usually a leather strap that you apply at the pole and the, uh, the upper part of the neck that connects directly to the head. And it, physically, mechanically tries, it does not really work, but the intention is to stop the cribbing behavior physically because the horse can no longer arch the neck in the same way in order to pull back and execute the behavior. The difficulty with that is that it works initially, so the, behavior, the owner is happy and doesn't see the horse cribbing anymore, but the horses will then crib harder or go over that threshold or over that physical restraint uh, and apply more pressure to it and then they overcome the physical restraint and they continue cribbing and then what the owner does he tightens the strap more and then it repeats it again and he tightens it more so what happened in Blondie's case was before she was mine uh, I was away on a conference um, and when I came back I found the owner had put that strap on so the, the, the cribbing collar, and uh, it was really tight. So I put my finger under and said, ah, this is tight. But it's not my horse. Not my horse. So I couldn't do, I couldn't do anything. The next weekend I come, I always came over the weekend. She, was, she had a partial facial paralysis. So her right side of the face was paralyzed. So her, her ear, right ear dropped her eye dropped, her nose dropped, her lip dropped, the whole right side dropped. Wow. And um, I spoke to the veterinarian 
and uh, he didn't know about the crimping collar so he uh, he thought that maybe she you know she lay poorly maybe on an edge or a stone or something when sleeping and it would compress the the nerve that had caused it and i said look i saw her the weekend before could it have been with the, because of the crimping collar and he said yeah that could be he didn't know so she she almost lost her eye because she couldn't close wow. it she could, and she didn't produce the um enough liquid to keep it wet so uh, luckily she did not but she's still she still has it's a bit opaque and we are very careful about her her eye make sure that um, she she always wears a fly mask etc she almost lost it and she it, it recovered a little bit but what that shows is again the welfare effect indirectly because humans think they have to stop the behavior and uh, yeah that's what it it might do it's it's not something that is reported often However, and I don't have proof, but to me, it's very likely that this was the cause. Another thing people do, um, just for to be uh, to to say all the things about it to compliment, is um, that they the easiest thing to do basically you you put some, for example, Tabasco sauce on the surface where the horses crib to make that unpleasant. The owner of Blondie also tried that; doesn't work. Uh, a really horrible thing they do, and he also did that for part of the bar, for part of her area, is uh, to put electric fencing. So she actually had only one, sur two surfaces in the box that she could crib on. Uh, all the rest, uh, where she would have had contact to other horses, uh, was there was the electric fence, so she couldn't crib on the on the fence. And so that's one thing they do. Another thing they do is um, surgery. So there's a way. There's a procedure that cuts part of the neck muscle, and the theory is that then they 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 are not able anymore to to carry out the behavior because they miss that muscle. I've seen horses where this was done and they continue grip biting the same way. So actually, with other horses, it seems to work. So it's sort of a okay, it could work or it could not work. But if you've done that, also the price of that horse also goes down because it looks very ugly. Um, you know, the, the neck shape is very relevant for riding horse. So if you have a hole there, that neck does not look very pretty. And there are some other horrible things that people do, like uh, there's a ring you can put in, in between the incisor teeth. It's a metal ring, like piercing. So it's not, it's not actually piercing, but you put a ring between the teeth. Uh, so that would, if they would try to creep, it hurts. So they don't do that. So that's, that's all. I've never seen that in practice, but. That's described in the literature. So these are the uh, human-inflicted welfare effects of, of the behavior. Yeah, and I guess one of the impacts on the humans as well that we haven't mentioned is what happens to fencing. You know, why, why, I guess why one of the reasons people are trying to stop it is if, if it's fencing, particularly, I mean, if it's, if it's steel or metal fencing, then the horse's teeth are going to be worn down, you know, and that's really problematic. But if you're talking about wooden fencing, I know I've been at properties where horses are cribbing and it does impact the fencing and, and wears through fencing. And so that is problematic for people, you know, there's a cost there for people. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm certainly not trying to excuse those unpleasant things people are doing. But I guess I, I want to make sure in our conversation that we canvass that that is, that is part of the reason that people find it unpalatable. Yeah, that's more the barn owner than the horse owner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So, Michaela, so you take up your master's to do this study on crib biting. And uh, I know that I know, because I know about the study, 
that it was a single subject study design, but I know at the beginning you had two horses actually that you looked at. And I guess I'm really interested to understand how you designed your study and why you went for a single subject study design, because it's not always, you know, often in science, we see, you know, large numbers being studied. And I think there's real merit in what you did and and what you could find out then. But could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so I'm coming from uh, biology in a big sense. And in biology, we are usually using group designs and large number, yes, is what, what you go for. So uh, since my supervisor and now collaborator in uh, or co-author of the of the current study that we plan to publish and uh, Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz he's a behavior analyst and behavior analysis uh, I don't know if it's known in Australia in Europe it's not known I always have to explain what it is and I'm not a behavior analyst so the behavior analyst please forgive if I'm not <laughs> explaining it correctly <laughs> but the and actually Many, many thanks to the University of Edinburgh that allowed me to do this uh, under supervision of Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz, who is um, a behavior analyst that is not necessarily linked to equine science or to that course or to veterinary medicine, etc. So they, they agreed for me to, to, to do that under his supervision. That was really um, quite pioneering, I would say. So in, be- in behavior analysis, they are using... Um, especially in applied behavior analysis, they use this to method to find the best treatment for an individual, a human in that case, in most cases. So the, the advantage is that you can work directly with, with the person, test an intervention, does it work or it doesn't work? Because the, the subject himself, herself is its own control or his or her own control. And that's really smart because you don't have the difficulty we have in group designs where we are comparing across individuals. So I, in a group design, I would look at actually an average of a group and then assume that what I get out of that can be generalized to another group or to another individual. So I use that those results from a group design to generalize to the whole population. Whereas in... Um, with a single subject design, you start out by, an, and it's not necessarily an individual, it can be several individuals, but it's a, certainly a smaller number. So you would go with maybe four or five. And actually, many of the group designs in uh, experiments with horses are eight. So you're, you're not actually that far off. And so you, you take a baseline, which is basically just observing the status quo under very defined conditions. Uh, then you would change something. And you, in an experimental setting, you try to change only one variable to make sure you know what you have changed and the effect of that change on, on behavior. Then, so you have your first intervention and you observe what behavior change there is, if any. And then you go back to your baseline and see if you, you actually can recreate what was there before. And then you could repeat it and say, okay, I'll do another, the same intervention again and see if I can repeat that same effect that I had. So you, if you put on these three phases, you have baseline intervention, baseline intervention. So there's a sh- uh, short way of writing it, which would be condition A would be your baseline. Condition B would be your intervention. And you go back to condition A, baseline, condition B, intervention. So that's what's called an ABAB design. So it's a reversal design because you are reversing to the baseline. And there are many, many different variations of it. But what it does is you can, by going to checking if you can go back, if it's reversible, can I go back to the same behavior? You are proving 
that it was the intervention that changed the behavior and not anything else. So it's a very smart way, a very elegant way uh, to show experimentally that your intervention has an effect on behavior. So this was the design that um, Jesus um, suggested. And uh, I'm uh, now, I've read a lot about it in the meantime, and I'm, uh, I see that it's really, really valuable because many of the group designs, especially in experiments with horses, they have very low numbers. So because horses are expensive. So if you want to do an experiment with horses, what happens very often, you have a set of eights. So you have eight in one group, eight in another group, and then you average it. But an average of eight, you know, doesn't give you a lot of information because you may have horse with, let's say, a count of one in whatever you are measuring. You have another one that has a count of 16. Your average is eight. What does that tell you? You had one and eight, one and 16. It's very different. Whereas in a, in a single subject design, you would look at each individual and see how that effect is. You are not averaging. So you get a lot more information from that individual. Now, you could argue that this is not, um, you cannot generalize to a larger population, but it doesn't stop there. So you have your first set of, say, your first experiment with one animal. Then you may repeat that same experiment with another two, three, four individuals. So that always, that replication of that same experiment, if you observe the same tendency, say that a certain intervention uh, has a certain effect on behavior, and you see that tendency in all of those individuals, you're already quite certain and say, okay, this, this is a good hypothesis. I, I seem to be on, onto something. So that already is a very good uh, indication for generalization or that it, this has a, a, a general effect. Then you can change the setting a little bit. You can say, okay, I tried this in the experiment. Let's go out in the field or tried it in this experiment. Uh, let me change the lightning. Let me change the day or the time of day. Let me change the experimenter. So you can change all types of things and test whether you still observe that same tendency. And the more you do that, the more valid your conclusion is. So it's a, it's a, it's a very elegant design also because it's, it's very quick. You use very few animals and you can adapt it quickly according to the responses the animal gives you. And since in our case, we did not really know what to expect. This has not been done with a crib biting horse before. Uh, and we didn't quite know where to go. This was the ideal approach. The very cool thing about it also is that you can apply it in, in the field setting. So because I didn't have a lab, it was not even my horse. So I could do it where the horse lives, you know, without really doing anything big. I didn't really change much. So, and the changes I did were sort of bricolage. So I could do, I could do it myself. I didn't need a, a technician or anybody to, to do it for me. So you can, you can apply it right, you know, anybody can do it, basically. You just need a video camera, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's so awesome. It's so interesting to hear you explain a little bit more about that because I've read a little bit, but I think you just explained it in a way that made so much sense to my, my head, Michaela. So, you know, that, that validity of doing that single subject study design and then being that repetition and that ability to make changes quickly and to do it in the field. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of pros there. And I'm sure that there's a lot of pros that a group design as well you know each each i'm sure each methodology has its own pros and cons um you know what i guess i'd really like to start to talk about you know what you what you then did so and and i guess the place i'd like to start is the fact that you did have these two horses because i think um and and you videoed them i think for 24 hours or at least one one sample of 24 hours each 
and observed that the cribbing behavior was different in the two holes. That maybe their action was the same, but their triggers and timing for that behavior was different. And that to me already starts to tell us something about crib biting that maybe we didn't think of so much before. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? Yes, that was interesting. So I started out with two horses that were in the same barn. So Blondie was uh, one of them and the other one, um, Tibon, was uh, also a Spanish gelding. And so they were both uh, observed crib biting. And what I did was, yeah, 24 hours surveillance video that I then analyzed uh, to identify a pattern. Actually, it was many more than 24 hours, but, you know, the camera doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of work and trying uh, involved. But basically, so what I did is I, I just filmed and then I went to analyze the video and I counted the crib biting occurrences. So whenever the horse was, was putting its incisor teeth on the horizontal surface and pull back, I count as one crib bite. Um, so I went through the 24 hours and counted those. And then I did a, a graph to see when those frequencies were higher or lower. I also um, recorded the feeding time. And also, of course, I would see when the horse was taken out, um, when other things happened, etc. But the most relevant was the feeding time. So these horses were fed three times a day hay. And they also got concentrates at not very at random intervals, because that's usually the owner who, who does the concentrate. And the hay is provided by the barn owner. So they are usually fed three times a day or in the morning, like 6.30. Then they get another round of hay around lunchtime and another in the evening, around 6, 6, 7, 6. They get the evening hay. And then between 6 and 6 in the morning, there is, you know, 12 hours um, where they don't get hay. So it's roughly 6 hours, you know, 6, 12, 18. And then there's one left out during the night with no hay. And um, for... For Tiburon, uh, he, he cribbed a lot in the early morning hours, like two, three. He had a peak of crib biting. And when the, before the, the hay arrived and when the hay was there, he stopped. So the, they usually, they take sort of 30 minutes to finish their ration, 30, 40 minutes, maximum an hour. If they, you know, they can, they continue finding some little bit hay here and there. And during that time, he did not crib. So it was before the hay arrived and especially in the night where sort of this empty spot was the, the six hours that was that there was no hay. Whereas for Blondie, it was quite different. So she um, she started cribbing bef just before. So when she anticipated the hay was arriving, she started cribbing. And as she was eating, the frequency peaked. So uh, it started with the announcement of feeding. And then it peaked and then she would, it would be very high during eating of, of hay. And then it sort of trickled down again a little bit. So it was quite different. Whereas Tiburon, he stopped cribbing when the hay was there and he was eating calmly his hay. And he cribbed when there was no hay. Whereas Blondie cribbed when there was hay. So this difference is quite startling. And this type of difference you wouldn't see in a group design. And already I find that fascinating because that starts to really suggest that it's an individual, it's demonstrated individually. Like it's not a, a crib biting horse is a crib biting horse is a crib biting horse. They're all 
crypt binding under different conditions. Exactly. Or, well, that's what it starts to suggest. That's a you know, yeah. two-horse sample suggesting that. Yeah. And can I just, just so that, um, you know, I've, I've seen visuals of this, so I can imagine what we're talking about in my head. Uh, but maybe could we describe the living conditions that these horses were kept in? And I just want to stress too, Michaela, that this was not the barn that you had your horses at. Your horses were at a different place. They were having a lovely life, like you described before, out, out, you know, in the paddock all of the time with friends and forage and access to things. But at this barn, what what was life like for the horses there? Yeah. So this uh, this barn, the horses are in a in a box individually. Um, that is now I don't know. Do you have a, you have a metric system in Australia? So anyway, it's like yeah. yeah. We're metric. Right. Three by three meters yep. box uh, with an adjacent paddock that she could go in and out. In, in Blondie's case, she could go in and out in an adjacent paddock that is sort of the same size, also three by three, roughly, um, which is actually already a lot better than most places. <laughs> so she, she could at least take some fresh air. But uh, very small. Uh, and the fencing to the neighboring horses had electric tape so she could see the other horses. There's a horse next to her but can't touch it. And um, she had no access to a field. She was never taken out on the field. She has never ta- had the opportunity to have for free movement with friends. You know, whenever she's taken out, it's for training. So she's uh, full-time in, in that box. So I did initially, when I analyzed, you know, the surveillance um, video, I did sort of a mini ethogram. So that is describing the behaviors I observed. And were basically four behaviors. That was it, because the opportunity, the environment does not give the opportunity to do anything else. Uh, for Tiburon, it was even well worse in a way because he he only had the box, so he didn't have an adjacent paddock. Uh, but then he was taken out to a paddock every day for a few hours. But again, it's still individual, uh, not together with other horses, and it's a very small paddock. So it was maybe a little bit bigger, four by four, but still, and it's. They're both young horses, so they didn't have the possibility to just be horse and also socially very, very poor. Yeah, so less than ideal living conditions. And I think, I guess I wanted you to explain that because here in Australia, it's more common to have horses that live out all year round. You know, we have a lot of space here Mm. and um, I guess a climate that lends itself to horses being out. So I think in all the places that I've kept horses, you know, they might they might have stables for sick horses or you know injured horses, but it's certainly most common that the horses are out in. Compared to what you've just described, I'm going to say big paddocks, quite big, you know, mostly quite much bigger paddocks than what you've described. Probably more like where your horses live. Um, so you know, I guess it can be a little hard for people in Australia to maybe just visualise that 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 is the case in places you know in other parts of the world where that's 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 kind of one of your choices in how you keep your horse. Yeah, people find it very convenient because they walk in and they take the horse out. They don't have to go to a field and call them and hope that they're coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and they're probably not muddy. They're probably not covered in mud either. Or, you yeah, know, exactly, kind of, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you observe the two horses, you see the different sort of um, context that they're cribbing in, in those living conditions, and then you... You decide to work with Blondie. So, what was it that made you decide to to continue with her, and, and as opposed to the other horse? And then, I guess, what happens next? So, you start to work with her and, and do some of those trials. 
what happens? Right. So the decision for Blondie was uh, she was the main subject anyway because I had an agreement with the owner. So he allowed me to 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 work with her, and he was also fixed there. Whereas Tiboran was there only for a short time. So I took actually advantage of of seeing his behavior as well, but that was more of a side uh, opportunity. So Blondie was the main main subject mostly because the owner allowed me to work with her. Uh, so the next step was to so the hypothesis was that so we saw the pattern that it's linked to seems to be linked with feeding uh, in that we saw that it peaked when she got the hay. So we wanted to test that, that is that actually the case? So we needed to find a, a way to prove um, that it is linked to feeding. That, that wasn't, uh, because there are many other environmental things and I'm not in a laboratory. So I have to see what, what can I do? What can I, how can I test whether that observation or that hypothesis is, is true? So Jesus uh, suggested to shift the feeding time and see if that has an effect on on the cribbing. So the horses, as I said earlier, they are fed 6.30, then around lunch, so let's say 12.30 or 1 o'clock, and then again at 6 in the evening. So um, I spoke to the person who's feeding the horses and the barn owner if we could shift the feeding time a little bit So and they, over a couple of days. And they kindly agreed. So he was feeding six in the morning. And I observed, um, I observed the morning session. So not the whole day. So we decided on the morning session because there are no people around at that time. Um, because that barn has 80 horses. So it's <laughs> a lot of people attached to those horses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we, we fed at six o'clock and, um, I did for three days. And I recorded everything with video so I could analyze, uh, count the, the cribbing behavior. Then another three days at seven o'clock and another three days at eight o'clock. And we saw that shifting the feed and feeding time also shifted the cribbing behavior. So that was, that's really important. So it was, she wasn't cribbing because of say, I don't know, whatever internal reasons. Uh, it was, we could clearly influencing it, influence it by shifting the feeding time. So that, that was an important, important piece. That means that the behavior is influenced by the conditions in the environment, not because something in the brain, you know, sort of changes and now you need to crib. So it's I, by changing the environment, I can influence the cribbing, which that this actually would mean that I can influence the behavior by changing the environment in a certain way. So that's important because that would be the first entry point into using operant techniques. So changing the environment, affecting behavior, changing, you know, the consequences, et cetera, et cetera. So that this was an entry, an important entry point that we did, we found. Then the, the next, uh, the next thing we did was we tested uh, a number of different things. And, um, it's basically trying to see what is it about the provision of hay that influences the, the cribbing. Because there are many aspects of it. If you think about it, uh, what happens, it's a long chain of events during the feeding. So you have the, the person feeding the hay arriving. He'll be walking along, you know, arriving in the barn, walk along the aisle, prepare the equipment that he's going to use, uh, open the door to the feedstock, uh, prepare the hay, and then starts feeding the hay, all of these little, little things. So we needed to see which stimulus so which or set of stimuli actually influence the behavior or control the behavior 
So we tested that and all of that in these reversal designs that I explained earlier. So these are small tests that you can do pretty quickly and get a good idea about which of the factors have an influence. So, for example, we would check whether just having that, that uh, blondie sees the hay in the barn aisle, you know, does that affect the behavior? So you would check the presence of hay versus the absence of hay. So condition one would be absence of hay, condition B would be presence of hay alternate. Does that affect the behavior? Then we'd also have to check whether what uh, if actually consuming the hay affects the behavior, you know, uh, does she, once she gets the hay and then the amount of hay and uh, is it large amounts, small amounts, then also the my presence or the person's presence, does that affect without the hay, just the person being here and there, etc. So all, there are a whole series of small tests that we did to see what affects. And basically what we found was that it's the the first signal that, that basically starts the whole procedure of feeding would uh, influence the cribbing frequency. So it was basically the car arriving, because I could hear it in the video actually when the car arrived, of the person feeding that would start the, the, the cribbing frequency. So depending on the time he, he arrives, affects when she starts cribbing. Animals are such experts at finding the thing that, and I know Alexandra has said this before, but the thing that comes before, the thing that comes before, the thing that comes before. And I feel like that's such a perfect example of that. Our, um, as a side, side story, we have a, a little dog who's blind and she used to react to the sound of the stove being switched on. We have a gas stove that makes a clicking noise when we turn it on. So she used to react and find that noise aversive and sort of bark in response to that. Now she barks when the pot gets washed, which is about, I don't know, half a dozen steps before the stove is being turned on and she will she reacts and you can, you can watch her and really see that. And over time, she didn't just go from the stove to the pot. She, you know, graduated back through the, you know, previous steps to the previous steps. So that makes a lot of sense to me that Blondie had figured out that car arriving equals hay is coming soon. And so triggers triggers that behavior. So wow, okay, you do all these tests, and oh my goodness, you all these little trials just you know to find out sort of more information. And then you kind of get, I, I guess, I don't know what you would call it scientifically, Michaela, but you you get your starting point almost, like your all right, this is our this is our baseline. We know what causes it. We know when it happens. We know the frequency it happens. Or, you know, approximately. Then what do you do with that information? What did you do with that information in, in this scenario with Blondie? You know, you, you, I guess it's time to start trying interventions to see what works. How, how do you then decide what interventions to even try with her? <laughs> yeah, it was not a direct road. Eh? <laughs> we were trying, we were trying different, uh, different things. Um, but I think. The main takeaway is, first of all, to say, okay, it's a, it's a learned behavior and it's controlled by the environment, which is already miles apart from how it's usually explained. So this is a very new way of looking at it. And I'm not saying the other ways are, are, are wrong. It's just a way of looking at it from a different angle and see if that helps to find a uh, treatment because we were not trying to explain the cause of the behavior. We just say, okay, it's there. What we do with it, right? And it will be different for each individual. So we don't need to explain um, how the behavior happened in the first place. So let's say, okay, the horse is cribbing. Now what we do? 
the approach is strongly influenced then by the constructional approach, which was brought to the training community um, to a large part by Jesus, uh, who explained this um, that is developed by, by Israel called Diamond um, in the in the human context on so human behavior and was was helped human patients um, with with that approach. So what it's it's about is um, so for me coming from the veterinary medicine, we are diagnosing a pathology, right? So we are trying to see which organ is malfunctioning, you know, and that's 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 why in the papers on crib biting, coming trying to explain crib biting, we go to pathologies, we go to organ dysfunction, so you know, gastric ulcers, um, brain neurological disorders, uh, these type of things. Now, in the behavior analysis, that is uh, where Jesus comes from, and um, part of that, of course, there are may also there there are many different schools, but uh, the, what what Israel Gold Diamond developed, um, which helps a lot to find treatment solutions, is instead of looking at these pathologies. What uh, can we build so that the the other behavior that is disturbing others, you know, because often it's not the, the person, sometimes it's also the person uh, that is disturbed by it, but also others. Uh, then in our case, it would be the people who are disturbed by it. <laughs> um, what can, what is, what is lacking? So what can we build so that this other behavior is no longer relevant? So for Blondie, what is, she's cribbing when she's eating hay. Now, what we would need to teach her is to eat hay. Now that sounds silly because horses know how to eat hay. And she does eat hay. But what she does is she eats hay and cribs. So what she does is she takes a bit of hay in her mouth. Then she goes and cribs four times. And then she swallows or not, and then takes another bite of hay, and she grips four times, and she goes back to the hay, and she grips four times. So what I want is that she eats hay. That's all. That's all. So that's the behavior she needs to learn. She needs to learn how to eat hay. And in a constructional approach, we will see what are the elements, how can we arrange the environment. So what is she doing now? Where do we want to go is we want her to eat hay calmly, a large amount of hay, her whole ration. and what skills does she need in order to to get there and how can we how can we build those now with eating hay it's really difficult because they need to eat hay often so i cannot just say you know for other behaviors you could say you know like a dog who's uh, who's um, barking at at people who are passing by you could say okay i train the behavior and no person will ever pass by so i go somewhere in the mountains there is nobody and i i work on that and then I slowly integrate, I start getting people to come or whatever at a distance and then fade them in sort of. So we couldn't do that because she needs to eat hay, <laughs> right? So the very cool thing is that, uh, that we've also learned from Jesus is that the, you are not just learning a behavior, you are learning a context. So you are learning the behavior in a given context, so in a certain environment under certain conditions. So this is all a package. You know, it's the relationship between the behavior and the environment that is learned. It's not only the behavior in a vacuum. So what you can do and what, what we did was we, we trained this eating hay behavior 
in a different context. So we created a sort of a, a, a training environment, which was specifically for building the skills that she will need to eat hay in a training setup. And her normal life continued just as it always did. And since this is not my horse, it's not my barn, I could not really, you know, I could not just take her to another box. I could not just create a lab. I could not just do anything. So what I did was I changed how her box looked like. So I covered, I covered the, the play area where she's screaming, which uh, was easy to control because she had only two surfaces, which was the feeder and the waterer. So I could cover those. So she doesn't have access to it. And at the same time, it's an environmental change that looks different from her normal life. So it's like a, it separates the two behaviors. They are two different uh, eating hay with cribbing and the training of eating hay are two different contexts. So for Blondie, these are two different behaviors, even though if you look at it, they seem to be the same, but they are not the same. In addition, I had a whole procedure, which would sort of, is sort of a routine that starts the training session and ends the training session to separate it also clearly from normal life. So I had a, a routine how how I started the session and ended the session. And then we did the I did I did the training uh, over the weekend. So Saturday and Sunday I came to train. And apart from those this half an hour basically that I was I was with her on those two days, there was nothing else related. So she just continued her normal life. And so, again, because I've seen the visual of this, um, when you described that you covered the two surfaces that she was cribbing, you used, I think, a shower a, a, a shower curtain. It was a pretty, like, it was a pretty simple thing. It wasn't any fancy. As you say, you're at a barn, you couldn't make big changes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you probably didn't have a massive budget for your research. So you had to get, you know, sort of cheap, affordable, easy options. And you were putting up a shower a simple shower curtain, if I remember rightly. Yes, initially I just covered it with a with a rug that with Blondie's rug that was hanging hair there, and uh, I just covered the surface basically, and that was already enough enough of a change. And then um, I got more sophisticated, and I thought about it, and I say, oh yeah, actually. So I had first a linen, an old linen that I discarded, and then I changed to the shower curtain. So I bought a uh, well a small rod that uh, is used for the curtains in the house. Yeah. And I just put that up and hang the shower curtain on it. So it was very easy for me to uh, come to the barn, put that up and remove it after because uh, it was very simple to install. And I know one of the other, um, you know, one of the other videos I saw fairly early on in this process is it, during that time you were there with her, but you weren't in the stall. I think that was a really conscious decision, wasn't it, for you to be standing outside of the stall? Because the idea was that Blondie was learning to eat hay not just hand fed by a human. Like it, the the idea was that eventually she would have this behavior without someone standing there with her. Yes, I was very conscious about it because also in the earlier uh, trials, um, I always checked whether my presence had an impact. So I would check whether is the behavior different when I'm standing in front of her or when I'm moving in the in the aisle or, or not. It didn't really have much of an effect. But for the new behavior, it was important that I'm not associated to it because I wouldn't want her to only eat hay in my presence because I don't have the time to always babysit her when she's eating her hay. So it was important that I'm not 
because it's the environmental context, the whole set of conditions that you are teaching. You're not only teaching the behavior, you teach the behavior in a context. So if I'm part of the context, that would, if I'm no longer there, the behavior would deteriorate. So I would not get the behavior. So it ha I had to be very, yes, careful about not that I'm not uh, a, an important a component of the overall environmental cues, if you want. Yeah, that was a very conscious choice. So in the beginning, um, the first part of that was in the teaching process, I needed to start, um, I needed to be there because I needed to feed her small amounts of hay because otherwise she would start cribbing. So I need to teach her to eat hay, just eat hay. Um, and uh, also in a, in a set of small trials, I learned that she can eat hay without cribbing if it's very small amounts of hay, just a you know, flake, very small flake or one, two strains of hay. That was it. And she could eat that without go going cribbing. And so the idea was you always, you know, if you go to clicker training, building behaviors, we start with the smallest loop that is clean and possible, you know, that the horse can do successfully. So that also applies to the consumption of hay in her case, because that's my target behavior. So I start with a clean loop, the small I need to go. So the smallest was really like three Hey, uh, I don't know how you'd call it. Plants. <laughs> strands, pieces, three strands of hay, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, flake would be too big. So it was really just a pinch. Uh, yeah. Taking with my two fingers. Um, she would be able, she, she can, she can eat that. So, and then I would build that, that behavior, right? So I also taught her, uh, targeting. So she knew with a, you know, normal, clicker training protocol she knew targeting and then i installed a wall target uh, which was just a was a panel with a black circle on a white uh, background on on the wall and when that was there i wanted her to orient to it and then i would give her a flake of hay so i don't just give hand feed it there was a condition there so she had to meet the, uh, the criterion and i would feed her but what i want different from what you normally build in terms of behavior is uh, you, you build behavior, so you would build the targeting behavior. But what I did, I wanted to build the consumption behavior, the consumption part. So I wanted her to eat long. And then when she's sort of through, she would look at the panel again and I would give her more. But I'm not building the targeting behavior. I'm building the consumption part, which is different from what, how we normally shape a behavior. The picture, you know, for anyone, you know, if you're listening to visualize this, it's a horse in a three by three meter stall. It is a shower curtain hanging across the corner of the stall that blocks the feeder and the water, automatic water dispenser, I think, were the two two things that she was cribbing off. And then you've placed the target on the wall and then you're positioned outside of the stall, which is, um, from memory, it was the, the style of uh, stable where you've got the sort of wooden panels on the lower half and then bars on the upper half. And so you're positioned outside the stable and then feeding hay to her through through the bars. So that's that's kind of where you're starting and you're focusing on that hay consumption as opposed to the, the action of targeting or orienting to the target. How did you even do that? Like, I mean, you know, I know how to teach a horse to target train, but that, that's that's fascinating that you managed to do that piece, like foc that focus on the consumption. Yeah, it, it is. And there, when I was when I did that and also the, the, the second part, uh, I realized that I think a lot of difficulties we have in in veterinary or science or animal animal sciences doing this that they we the scientists are often not animal trainers 
in most cases. Um, sometimes they recruit animal trainers, so that would, Im would improve the study. But if they use just, you know, a student, uh, say a veterinary student to, to carry out uh, maybe her PhD or a master's or whatever, uh, they are not they are not animal trainers. So they don't have the experience of shifting criteria and building behavior and they would not not succeed. I'm I'm an experienced trainer using, you know, shaping shaping I know how to shape behaviors. And uh from my observations or my experience, there's a there's a bit of art in there that is uh, built by experience that you cannot just and that, that's going to be the difficulty in writing it up because you are, if you write a, a paper mm. The procedure has to be repeatable by other scientists. That's what we want. So you have to put as much detail as possible. However, there's an element of art in there that's not necessarily translatable directly to somebody who wants to repeat that experiment. So yes, and that is, it's difficult to operationalize it because I cannot just say, you know, after so many repetitions, uh, you have to go to the next step. Uh, it doesn't work like that because I'm, you, you are, gradually shifting your criterion depending on the response I get from the horse. So, yeah, that's, it. yeah. I think in future, any of these studies, uh, also on different subjects, but that involve training, um, we have really have to make sure in science that they get experienced trainers to, to do this type. You know, if you do a lab, lab experiment, you have experienced lab technicians who know it. Um, so it's important. And this is, this is, just as important. So you need an experienced trainer to do that because otherwise it's not the animal's fault that you're not successful in your experiment. <laughs> but that's another story. So yes, um, it was, um, you, you are building it very slowly, a bit different from how you normally shape a behavior if you're, if you're a clicker trainer and know how to do that. So it's a bit um, the other side of the, of the, of the loop. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's, and there's so many, you know, when you're, when you're in that moment and you're training, and you have that level of experience as a trainer, I think it's that ability to observe a multitude of things at once or, or to, for you to be able to take in a lot of information that Blondie's giving you and that the environment's giving you at one time and be able to quickly process that and react accordingly, you know, every single repetition. And you, it's, it is that ability to observe that body language particularly, I think, and all the quirks and nuances that you would have been seeing. It's a bit like when you drive a car, you know, what, what is that what is that graph where it's like the conscious incompetence, um, mm -hmm. unconscious incompetence, or, you know, what's the, whatever that graph is, it's that unconscious competence that you have in, in that ability to see, understand, or react quite quickly. That's the tricky thing, I think, to replicate for people that you've been able to do in that moment as you're building, you know, as you're shifting that criteria, depending on, on her response. Exactly. So I was looking at her, um, the goal was to have her maintain eating, right? She's supposed, she, I want her to eat long and as much as possible without, uh, looking towards the surface where she would be cribbing. So if she would start looking at the surface, I know that I, I risk losing the behavior. So I would, um, I'd need to change something to make sure that she stays with me. And that, yeah, that's what I needed to, to focus on. So they are very subtle, very subtle body language that I need to observe. Yeah, very subtle. And I think we in this podcast so far in, you know, season one and season two, and I have no doubt that this will come out through season three as well. We just keep coming back to that importance for people of being able to see body language 
and interpret it well with horses and just how important that is to so much virtually I think everything we do with horses and so it comes out again you know in this in this study which is really unsurprising so you all right so you've got that condition you've got the all right uh the the curtains up you've got the target on the wall you're giving hay through the bars you want her to um, orient if anything towards the target and away from the cribbing surfaces so you're looking for her to do that and over time how does how does that evolve over time? So you're shifting that criteria and you're progressing. I mean, I've seen the visuals and I know how cool they look, but can you take us through like that progression as she started to understand and and you were able to grow that initial kernel of that clean loop out? That was actually, so the first part was actually quite quick. So I got up to, um, she was eating hay, you know, without changing focus. So she was just eating hay as any any horse does. Uh, we got to, I think, four or five minutes where she would, she would do that. And then we shifted to the second part of the, of this study. So in the second part of, of this, uh, treatment that we are trying, uh, is now that we, she gets her whole ration. So I'm no longer hand feeding small pieces. So she gets a whole ration of hay. So we start by the routine. So that's the, the start of the training session, which I, uh, I ask her to go out to the paddock. So basically, I just get a, a bucket with a couple of pellets and she follows me out to the paddock. She gets to eat those. I close the door. So she stayed out in the paddock so I can install the shower curtain then and the, give her the hay. Then I invite her in and then I disappear. So I film, but I disappear. And she's in there for 20 minutes. And so there is no training from my side. The training is done by the environment. Okay not excluding me. So I set up the environment that does the training and I, I stay out of it. So she comes in, uh, the curtain is there to, that she does not see the surfaces where she grips on. So she walks in, goes to her hay and she eats the hay 20 minutes. Then I will come back in again, uh, for, give her some pallets so she would leave the training area, which is her box. Uh, I close again, then I remove everything and in, invite her back in, and that's it. That's that's the training session. So I did that, uh, and every time, so I get a clean behavior. That is, she she eats constantly, and my my focus is to maintain that behavior. So I'm going to. So the, in the first part, I was building the behavior, so of eating hay. Now I maintain that behavior, so there's no more training of of eating the hay. She has that in repertoire. So what I'm changing now is the environment because I, in the end, I want to transfer this behavior into her normal life. So um, th- I have to remove the shower curtain, but I have to remove it gradually and so sneakily that she does not even notice that it's changed so that I can maintain the behavior. So over the next sessions, what I do is I change the curtain. Everything remains the same except the shower curtain. And I fade it out very, very slowly in such tiny pieces. And there again, the art comes in because I have to see her behavior. And I observe it mostly by how she walks in. She walks in and goes straight to the hay and starts eating. Then I'm on a good track. You know, if there would be some hesitation or looking towards where her sur- uh, cribbing surface is, and um, maybe I took away too much of the curtain. So I want to maintain that really strong behavior of just go and eat. And uh, over the sessions, so that's different days, I would always cut a little bit away of the curtain. And there's also some 
change in transparency, etc. But as a visualization, just think um, that the curtain in the beginning is a very drastic change. So it's a very wall-like. And then this wall fades away like puzzle pieces. So you get less and less and less, and it becomes more and more transparent, uh, less curtain in itself. So little by little, there are these games. I don't know if you did those. There were these games. We had that in Germany. Um, there was actually a TV show. They would show um, a covered picture, and then they would always remove a puzzle piece. And then the first one to identify what it is, you know, would shout out, you had those? Yes, yes. Also, we would play that at school, actually. You'd get a tray of objects, and then something would be taken off, and you would have to guess. It would come back, and yeah. yeah. So very similar. It's something like that. And uh, the German listeners of my generation, it was Dali Click. <laughs> it's interesting. It actually had a click in there. Anyway, so uh, you have to imagine it like that. So I was taking pieces out and then the the picture that you, underneath would be the cribbing surfaces would come out slowly. Okay. So you, we are fading them in. So she, maintaining the behavior. So she would continue eating her hay, not even realizing that the cribbing surfaces are, are there now. So we are exposing them. And by the end of it, there were actually only two small, transparent, little plastic strips above, really high up there that she would never actually notice. They were the only remnants of the beginning shower curtains. So she would walk in, eat her hay 20 minutes, I end the session, and she has not cribbed once. That's amazing. And the, and the visuals of that were just beautiful because, Michaela, you are, you are the queen of video documentation of your training sessions. I have such envy for you, how, how good you are at documenting all your training and the gift that that is to the rest of us that you then get to see some of that. Um, and yeah, they were just, just two tiny strips that were, were like quite high up in the air because the, the rod was at the top of the, you know, the stall and what they, they might have been about 30 centimetres or something. They were not very long at all. So not, not covering anything really, just hanging there. So because I'm super conscious of time, I'm going to maybe fast forward a little bit to say that, so you got to that point, she's got those two tiny little see-through strips hanging up in her stall. She's eating for 20 minutes, no problem. This is just you coming and doing two sessions on the weekend because, you know, life's busy and you're also veterinarian with a job and also, you know, trying to do your research and there's an awful lot of video analysis. I can't begin to imagine how many hours you spent counting, cribbing in front of a computer screen. So it's all going really well. And I know that about this time, there's this massive upheaval with the study because the owner then decides he's going to sell Blondie, which you mentioned earlier on, and you haven't finished your study. And so this throws your master's research into quite the, ooh, that must have been a very stressful time about what's going to happen with your project. Well, uh Yes and no. So for the masters, it was irrelevant because that one we uh, I took only the first parts. For for the what's included in the masters is only the shifting, the okay. shifting of the feeding time. Yeah. And we did another uh, experiment, which I didn't explain now, uh, which was basically trying to see if I can interrupt the behavior by providing scratching. That's also actually really cool. But I'm not going to that now. That you can read in the master thesis. Uh, it's uh, that one. That one was done. But we wanted, of course, I told Jesus. I said, no, we can stop there because I want to find. <laughs> I want to find a treatment. 
<laughs> and I insisted on that very much. And uh, well, he was he was also interested. So we continued doing, which is which I'm going to write up and publish separately as a as a paper. Uh, so yes, but but basically um, that was the time exactly the moment where the owner said he he wanted to sell her, and that would have been a bit of a disaster <laughs> in terms of data uh, because yeah I had such good data and um, I wanted to, I was really close to finish that experiment. So I I just well he knew very well that I was going to buy her anyway <laughs> because he knows me. Uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't let her go. I mean I worked with this horse for four years. Oh. Um, you get quite you know, attached. Yeah. Uh, and also knowing that where she might end up, a cribbing horse with the facial paralysis, uh, she, she, because she has a beautiful color, uh, she has a beautiful color, so people might buy her because of that, but then they will realize that she comes with a whole lot of baggage, which is a yeah. whole other story <laughs> about uh, transitioning horses uh, from a correction-based system to a positive reinforcement system and the troubles uh, associated with that. Yeah, we might have to have you back to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah. So I saw her going to one more owner and then end up being slaughtered. And I said, I cannot let that happen. Yeah. So I got her. And um, that also coincided with the pandemic, with the COVID pandemic. So she... That came right after. So in, it was in December 2019 that I I bought her, and in winter I could not take her to the to our place because we are up in the hills, and for it would have been too hard for her to go right into the winter. So I wanted to wait until spring, even though I know she needed to stay longer under those conditions. But I said, okay, she's already been there a couple of years, then you yeah. know, a few more months. And we could also prepare her because we had to take her shoes off and transition to being barefoot, etc. So uh, she had to stay in that environment, which on the other hand allowed me to continue working. And now I could change a little bit uh, in the sense now she was my horse, um, so I had more control. So what we did is um, I did the experiment also. I wanted to do it also with the other feeding times because they are fed three times a day and I was always working during lunch, so with the lunch hay. Because I went uh, during the lunch period, uh, so I went, and then the evening uh, it gets dark early in win now winters. So at five o'clock, basically it's it's dark. So when I came to the evening feeding around six after work, <laughs> it was dark, and that's a whole new different yes. condition. So it's yeah, so it's an environmental condition. So the behavior was not there. So I had to rebuild it. So I had to do the whole, not the first part, but the second part with the shower curtains and fading out the shower curtains. That part I had to redo the whole thing um, for the evening feeding. So to build this 20 minutes again. At this point, how thankful were you that you chose shower curtains that were cheap and easy to buy? Exactly. Like had, yes, yes, very <laughs> smart. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. So that that's also an interesting piece, uh, you know, to, to realize that it's the part of day being light outside and being dark uh, is, is relevant. Wow. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, I, I really, I feel like we need to have another conversation to talk about kind of then, the, the, you know, what, what happened in the ensuing time. But, you know, you, I think one of the key things I, I learned about when I was learning about this is that because your work with Blondie to that point had really been focused on the, the cribbing project, you didn't really have a, a relationship with her beyond that. So you buy her in December 2019. You have winter to kind of work with her and try and build some kind of relationship to be able to then get her to the property where your horses are. 
and have her join that herd. So I know you had quite a steep, you know, and, and that's probably a conversation for another day, but just, I think it's worth noting for listeners that it wasn't, you know, your relationship with her before then had been really, um, because of the way you were doing your research and you not being sort of a condition for her to eat that hay in, you hadn't been there and, um, but you, you know, you didn't have that intimacy, I guess, with her in other ways, you know, I think a lot of intimacy with this project. So then could we fast forward to you get her home to your place and given we're talking about the cribbing and what happened when you changed her environment in terms of the cribbing, what did you notice about it? Right. So one thing I, I let's say, let me add that we could not complete the, the training because I didn't want to keep her there for too long. So as, and in addition, because we had uh, the COVID pandemic, there was, uh, you know, in Italy, it was really bad. In Northern Italy, it was horrible, horrible. Many, many, many people died. So um, we had very severe restrictions. And um, in the beginning, we could still go to the horses. Um, uh, but then the barn owner was, was worried. So she said, we take care of the horses. You can no longer go. So I imagined her being in that box the entire day for the next, you know, coming weeks. We didn't know how long this will take. So I told her, I said, no, I'm going to pick her up. So I, um, I asked a friend who's an official veterinarian. He gave me the permit to um, collect her. So I, <laughs> I always like to tell that story because it was actually, now in hindsight, it was sort of funny. Uh, I, I, so I called her, I'm going to pick her up. I put the trailer, ho- hooked up the trailer and then, and I drove in and like a horse thief, you know, because everything was sort of locked up. There was nobody except the barn yeah. owner open to, for me, obviously. And I loaded her and we drove away and I was sort of in the streets and I was like, I hope there's no carabinieri going to check me out. <laughs> I had the permit, everything was right, but I was still a, still a bit like a horse thief, hoping that no police is going to control me and ask for, you know, a justification for being out in the streets because we were supposed to be at home, right? Yeah, wow. But yes, so there was, let's say, in terms of for the study, it would have been better to continue, but for ethical reasons, uh, yeah. I could not leave her, leave her there. So I could not complete the training because, say, ideally, you know, if you don't care about the welfare of the horse and you just want to do your science, you would, I would have continued and do more generalizations. So I would have had to generalize to different times of day and I would have thought about other conditions um, to generalize the eating so that she would eat her hay calmly across different mm. settings. Yeah. So you would do that um, before, in order to, to say, okay, now I've sort of uh, changed the stimulus conditions or the, the stimulus control of the behavior, basically, under which behavior, under which conditions she can eat her hay. You know, I've, I've generalized it to overall life, basically. I couldn't complete it. I don't know if I would have ever been able to do that, but uh, it was, I couldn't even try because of the ethical mm. concerns of leave, leaving her there. So my hope was that since it's a drastic change in the environment, uh, taking her to, to my place or where I keep my horses, it, I thought I was hoping that this total shift in, in conditions is going to be beneficial in terms of the cribbing. Uh, so she, we brought her up and we kept her first separate from the, from the other horses, but next, so they could know, get to know each other, etc. And then we slowly integrated her. We do that by putting the horses in pairs. So she gets one on one time with each member of the group. And then within two weeks, she was integrated in the herd, which is really 
I say my our horses are really fantastic. Uh, our eldest uh, mare, she took her under her wing and she said, "Come with me. I show you the people here." And it was a very smooth integration for a horse who has basically since being a foal never been in a in a group. And also we have them in the forest. There are lots of trees, small trees, but many of them. And the horses run like crazy through the through the forest. I don't know how they do, but they do a lot of gymnastics running, you know, <laughs> avoiding the trees. And I was always thinking, oh God, she's going to run in a tree because one, she she has the right side that is not really working entirely, and she's never been <laughs> out in the forest. But she's she did quite well actually. So she never bumped into any any tree. It's amazing. So the the yes, in terms of cribbing, so we did not see any cribbing for two months. Uh, nothing. And I was very, very hopeful. I thought, wow, that's really, really cool. And you can already note out of my description that the cribbing did did come back. However, there was uh, there there's actually a there was a big change in in the cribbing behavior. It's very interesting that people because I've watched so many, so I watched over the years in detail how she's cribbing and under which conditions she's cribbing, and I see the topography of the behavior change. So in papers, usually, you know, they have their definition of cribbing and this is how it looks like. And they think like it's, uh, it appears, I'm not saying that the scientists say it is, but it gives the impression of being a fixed pattern. This is how it looks like, finish. But that's not what it is. It's variable. It does change and it's a learned behavior that continues to evolve, to continue to change. Mm. So for example, uh, when I did the 24-hour observation, which was more than 24 hours, it was several days because I never managed to get a full 24 hours because my video broke down or whatever. So it was it was a longer time than that. But I could see the the the, the cribbing behavior changed, and I have it on video. It's quite fascinating because the owner, in his attempt to to get rid of the behavior, at one point he put uh, you know these jolly balls. Yes. You know those. Yes. So he put a jolly ball over the the the, the water automatic water and so what she learned was to push aside the ball and then drink okay so she integrated that into her cribbing so she would take now she would uh, after that he removed the ball again but the behavior that stayed was she'd take a bit of hay she'll dip the hay into the water and then she would crib wow so she takes a bit of hay dips it into the water and then cribs and that wasn't there before. It was after he had put the jolly ball. So there's a change in topography, which nobody has ever described. Then the other thing that I noted was uh, that she she started cribbing. She's no longer cribbing on hard surfaces. So she, where she did that uh, in the stall, she cribbed on the metal feeder. She no longer does that. She only cribs on uh, rope. And if I, if we were in a position to give the hay without um, hay net, yeah. she would still now, she will not crib. She does crib if there's a rope uh, present, then she, she, she cribs on the rope. If there's no rope, she doesn't crib. And people will now say, yeah, it's because the hay net induces frustration. That's why they crib. No, even if the hay is open and I just put a rope there, it's the rope that controls the crib biting behavior. It's not being restricted access to hay. She can have free hay mm. with just a rope hanging. She would crib on the rope because she has transferred the crib biting from the 
horizontal metal feeder, she transferred that to a rope. Um, so that's what that's what she does. And if I if I have no hay net, she eats her hay without cribbing. But because the other horses are overfeeding on the hay, we have to put the hay net. And also because we would need to change the whole feeder because we have a very special hay from uh, Asphalt who is asthmatic. So he needs a very special hay, which which we need to keep together in a hay net. Otherwise, we, there's a lot of waste uh, because they are a bit short. Uh, so we, we need the hay. Uh, we haven't found a solution to that problem. And so we, okay. We have one advantage, one disadvantage. So she does, she does crib with the hen at present, but I want to make sure that people understand it's not because frustration because yes. she's out of her hen at. That's not, that's not it. It's because it's transferred to, to the, to the rope and she doesn't crib on metal surfaces, which is good for the teeth. Um, I understand a lot more about, about that behavior now. Wow. And you, you know what? I know. From a study, you know, from a research perspective, you know, you want to keep conditions as similar as possible and, you know, having her stay at that barn would have been ideal from a research perspective, not from a welfare and ethical perspective for the individual in question, for Blondie. But what you've done is more closely replicate life for most people who have a crib-biting horse because life happens and things change and COVID happens and it can be hard to keep that same set of circumstances for an extended period of time. So I know it probably wasn't ideal in some ways, but in other ways it was perfect, really. Yes, yes, also I'm uh, yes, definitely. And I, you know, I'm uh, I was tempted several times we did start several times doing more more trials, uh, but then I said no, I have to stop and write it up because I could go on for I could go on forever. This is so fascinating. <laughs> so and I have so many ideas. You know, I know I know what to do because we have a proof of concept. We know how how this could work. Um, we haven't quite found a total solution, and it will be individual, obviously. But as a we have a proof of concept because the 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 effect was dramatic, really dramatic. Um, so I, I could and you've seen the probe. So that means I've put a video out. Uh, before the training condition, that's still in the, at the end of the first set when we we're still in the old barn. So the, the most convincing video evidence I have is, uh, the baseline, baseline of the cribbing before I do the intervention, which is her normal cribbing behavior. So eating a bit of hay, four times cribbing, eating a bit of hay, four times cribbing. That's the baseline before the intervention, the intervention being taking her outside. At that point, there were only two small, tiny strips of transparent plastic over her head, hardly noticeable. I have to point it out and I show the video. I say, you see them up there, they are hanging there. And in that condition, she eats her hay 20 minutes without even looking at the ribbing surface. Then I end the intervention, which just means taking her outside, removing these tiny, small plastic strips that nobody has ever noticed anyway. And I take her back in. And she continues eating hay for 14 minutes calmly. And then at some point, which is a carryover effect of the intervention, which uh, can be explained by behavior analysis. And, and then she goes back to the, her, her normal condition of cribbing. So it, that is just so drastic because it's the same horse. It's the same condition. If she had a gastric ulcer, it would still be there. You know, I cannot mm. switch it off at that time. If she had a, a chronic change in her brain, it would still be there. It's not that. It's controlled by the environment that I can influence. So this gives a lot of hope. It's like, guys, there, we have something. This we can use. Ah. So we still haven't figured it out. I'm not saying we figured it out, but this is a 
a road we have to travel and, and, you know, more people doing experiments, more people trying, trying it out, not only for crib biting, because it's, it's not about crib biting. It's about the approach, the methodology, um, for behaviors that are really difficult to change. I say, try that. That could work. But yeah. So, and I'm, I'm ready to continue doing it and I know it can work, but I have to write it up. <laughs> so I took a pause. I say, no. This year, I'm 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 working on a manuscript, and I want to, I want I definitely want to have it out before I do collect any new data, uh, because uh, I, I need to have it out. Well, you've just answered two of my my kind of two of my questions right at the end of this conversation. Michaela was around plans to publish a paper, so you're in the process of writing that, and so at some point, these I I know from friends who've written papers, it can take quite some time to not only write it but then have it accepted and published and go through that process and then it sounds like there are plans for further research which is really exciting yeah yeah i will i will definitely continue the the, the tricky part uh, for this project is the collaboration between two sciences so i'm coming from biology veterinary animal sciences jesus uh, from behavior analysis and these two sciences don't talk to each other so they are different journals they are uh, so for the for the veterinary people, I have to explain what I did, but I have to justify single subject design. They are very difficult to publish in veterinary journals, extremely difficult. So uh, basically, they are not there. Uh, but I do want to publish in a veterinary community because this needs to, it needs, that's the people I need to reach. Um, uh, so I, there are a lot of concepts I need to explain and I need to understand myself because it's not my, it's not my expertise. So I need to understand and explain it really well. Whereas if we would publish in a, in a behavior analysis journal, Many of the things I would not need, they wouldn't need to be explained because it's, it's what is, what is done, right? The methodology is standard, but I need to explain quite many things and it has to be really logical in order to be accepted. Otherwise they will not accept it. Um, so that, that's the tricky part because, um, I'm, I'm scrutinizing it and really checking, okay, what would be the, the criticism and how can I justify it? And I don't have all these things ready because it's not my expertise. So I have to find the papers. And I have to go often very far back because these are papers often from the 60s. Um, I read an excellent book. Actually, we should put that in the notes for people who are really nerdy um, by, by Sitman about tactics of scientific research. This one is fantastic. Really, really good book. And um, yeah, so it, it takes a lot of reading, finding the right articles so that I can give the explanations that people coming from a different background so they can understand the whole reasoning why we did it that way and i feel like what you're doing in doing that is pioneering the working together of those two spaces that really should come together for the welfare of horses and the, 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 it opens up a world of opportunity i think when we can start to work outside of our fields and work with other people as i mentioned at the start of the call my parallel career to horses is I'm a social scientist in the environment field. So why people do what they do is of interest to me. And I was at a recent um, welfare conference and they were talking there about how they need to be working more with social scientists. And I was like, oh, great. I am one horse. <laughs> this is excellent. But I think that's, that's really pioneering even that bringing those two, those two different fields together in that way and, and helping to translate, you know, almost being that translator that sits in between those two fields is really important. Um, hey, Michaela, super conscious of time for you and me. And I guess I just have one last question for you. Um, and it might be a curly question, so I'm sorry, but what tips would you have for anyone who has a cribbing horse? Because I bet there are people listening who do, 
what would you suggest they, what do you, what do they do when they get off this podcast? Uh, provide your horse, any horse, whether it's a cribber or not a cribber, with the best environmental conditions, you know, the best human horse interaction, um, have a happy horse. Then if you have a happy horse that cribs, it's still happy. And here I actually don't agree with many of the welfare people who want to use um, such behavior as an indicator of poor welfare. I do not agree. I do not agree that Blondie now under her current conditions is unhappy. I don't agree. So, you know, relax about it. Don't, the important thing is any horse, cribber or not cribber, they have to be, you know, out with friends, have enough forage, have positive interaction with the other horses, positive interaction with people. Um, you know, don't, then, then if you have a happy horse that is cribbing, no problem. If you want to do more, I mean, if, if you really want to engage in, 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 in actively doing something, be prepared that it's a lot of work. And I don't think it's worth the effort. I did it out of academic interest, but um, yeah. Is that not like the best advice for people ever? Like, I mean, sometimes we finish and people are like, <laughs> don't do anything. Yeah, do anything. <laughs> There's a list. Do the, da, 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 You know, and they're all great things people should do. But <laughs> for anyone with a cribbing horse to be told, just relax and make sure your horse has all its kind of other needs catered for and, and it's still a happy, you know, can still be a happy horse irrespective of this stereotypic behavior. I think that's, that's the best advice we've, you know, talk about simple advice for people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, I will add a caveat in the sense um, that for those who are doing uh, positive reinforcement training and use food as a, as a reinforcer or work a lot at liberty and your horse goes off to, to crib, so this, this is a difficulty, um, that you will encounter. So it's, it's not in terms of, tr you know, don't worry about it in terms of trying to get rid of the behavior. Don't worry about that. If you want to train and you realize that you lose your horse there, it's about improving your training skills. So you need to be, you need to become a better trainer, which again, doesn't matter which horse you just, you we always have to be a better trainers. So. It's, it can be a bit more challenging um, because the horses are maybe more, you, you lose them in such a drastic way. Lose, I mean, you know, if you work with them at Liberty and Blondie did that initially and she would, she would walk, walk away and I was like, hang on. But then I needed to become smarter and become a better trainer and then she would stay with me. And yes, so don't don't let's say um if if you reach that point don't think you know you can't clicker train that horse you can still clicker train that horse you just you may need better advice uh to become a better trainer but you can still you can absolutely clicker train there are papers out there that claim that horses that are cribbing have a lesser a lower we say learning capability or learning ability and that drives me nuts i say I, and i say well you you were a poor trainer that is not the horse's fault you know I mean, I think I think that is, it's such an indicator behavior for people too, you know, to change something. Like it's, you know, we talk about horses whispering and whispering can be hard to spot. But if you have a horse that says no by going off to crib, and and, and I know I've seen some footage of your, your early days with Blondie where she would do that and she literally just strolls off. It's not like she bolts away from you, you know, she just literally take, calmly walks off and goes to crib. Well, what a um, what an emphatic way for you as a trainer to go. Ah, we need to change some things here. Okay, this is a great, really explicit indicator that there's something to be changed. And as you say, Michaela makes you a better trainer. And I feel like this is an excellent segue to say that we will have 
links to your work, Michaela, um, your training, and you know if people want to reach out to you because they have a cribbing horse and they would like to do some training with you and have you you know um, help them with their positive reinforcement training or their and or their classical dressage training, your your passions, we will have links in the show notes to that. And um, yeah, you're, it's just been amazing chatting to you today, Michaela. And yes. It, I, I may have to hit you up again for another podcast because I feel like we we kind of there's still more to this story that we didn't get to unpack today because it's and it's such a compelling story and it's so interesting and there's so much in there that people could take from it and learn from. So I I so appreciate your time and the gorgeous ceiling that you have behind you that um, listeners won't see, but that you know Michaela's in this house in Italy that's like from the 1600s <laughs> or something. It's it is beautiful. Um, so I've had the pleasure of looking at that while we've been chatting. And so I just want to say thank you, Michaela, like for your work, for your determination to study this, for your ability to document that video evidence and to collect that data, and 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 giving Blondie the home she now has and sharing this with us. Amazing. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah, for having me. It's a pleasure. I always like love talking about it because it's really fascinating. So fascinating. Thank you and we'll catch you soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, that's awesome. Make sure to subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Then please rate and review an equine conversation. Downloading, rating and reviewing is really important as it actually helps other people to find our podcast due to the strange podcast algorithms and search terms. Of course, be sure to let your friends know about an equine conversation too. Show notes from this episode are available online, including the links that Michaela mentioned. Sign up to our mailing list at www.abbeyesrunequestrian.com.au to be the first to hear about upcoming activities and programs on offer including our next intake of our Young and Green Horse program from Green to Growth. You can also find us at Abby's Run Equestrian on Facebook. If you're an amazingly dedicated listener and you've listened through this whole episode on the day of its release, then FYI, there are just a couple of days left to book a discovery call for our 1st of November 2023 intake of From Green to Growth. So if you're keen, be sure to head straight to the From Green to Growth page on our website and book a conversation ASAP. Our next intake will be happening in early 2024. So make sure to join up to our mailing list to be the first to hear the details. On next week's episode, I'm going to be talking about farts and unicorns. Yep, you heard me, farts and unicorns. This will make way more sense when you listen to the episode. I'm going to be sharing two pieces of training advice with you, advice that I've been talking to my students about for over a decade, and two things that we can all be putting into practice regardless of where we're at with our equine partnerships and training. I look forward to sharing with you next week. Our intro song is Ventura by Morgan Taylor via Soundstripe. Thank you to Matthew Bliss for podcast production and consultation. If you'd like him to help with your podcast, get in touch by email at info at B-L-I-S-S-E-R-Y.fm. Big scratches to your ponies from the team here at Abby's Run Equestrian, and we'll catch you next week with Series 3, Episode 5 of An Equine Conversation. Bye!